Welcome to another edition of Aspen Answered. Today, Megan, Katie, and I are joined by Dr. Vicki Crane, who served as the 21st president of ASP from 2006 to 2007. Dr. Crane is a professor of teaching excellence at Bowling Green State University. Dr. Crane, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be here with y'all. So what we'd like to do is we just like to get kind of started with you giving us a 30-second elevator pitch bio about where you are now, and we'll get to where you got came from in a bit, just a 30-second elevator pitch of where you are right now. Ah, I am at Bowling Green State University in my 33rd year here. Um, I teach predominantly in our undergraduate sport management program and, and our graduate kinesiology program, so my time's a little bit split. I work with, um, I teach the undergraduate sport, sports psychology. I teach the undergraduate sport and social justice. And then at the grad level, I teach um, applied sports psychology and gender sexuality in sport, and then also research methods and qualitative research. Great, thank you. Sounds like a lot of classes. <laughs> That's what happens when you have a smaller faculty and a broad curriculum. But I actually liked having the, the diversity of things. And a wide range of expertises, I would say, too. Oh, it's built up over time. So speaking of that, um, in our podcast, the really our goal really is to better understand where key figures in our field, how they got into the field, um, what they're doing now, and then especially like really any of those key moments that led to where you are now. So if you could give us... Um, a bit of background on your pathway that got you into maybe sports, say got you um, to your uh, professorship at Bowling Green, and then any significant moments that happened along the way. Sure. Um, I think like a lot of us, I started out as an athlete. Um, it was a very different era than what girls and women have available to them today. Uh, I kind of consider myself, I was really good at all the neighborhood sports, but didn't have um, organized teams until I got a little bit older. So in, I learned to ski at a really young age. And then when I got to high school, we had a ski team in Michigan. And then I, my first year to play on an organized soccer team was uh, my junior year in high school. Um, because of that, it was really obvious to me, the distinctions between what boys could do and girls could do and how my brothers were supported and expectations around me. So that kind of started my feminist sport um, way of being, I guess I could say, um, got me thinking from a very early age that there was clear inequities. And I, I, I definitely noticed them. And then when I got to Denison, which is where I went to grad, went to undergraduate, I was a psychology major and I was on the soccer team. And there were like two different worlds, you know? Um, and I, I was a little nerdy. And so once a semester, we were a small university. So I would go up to Ohio State and use their library because all of my psych classes had like a major 15, 20 page paper at the end of the semester. So I would go sit in their library and gather resources. And in the olden days, Xerox everything I could. Um, and all of a sudden I found this journal or this art, yeah, journal, journal of sport psychology. I'm like, holy cow, what is this? Is like, is this a thing? So I literally copied the whole thing, brought it back to my favorite psychology professor and was like, what is this? Can I do this? Can we study this? And he's like, I've never heard of it before, but he was wonderful. And so the two of us, and this was probably around 1982, 81, and he was wonderful. So the two of us met once a week, we read a different article and just talked about it. 
And I was like, okay, I want to go to grad school. I want to do this. And I truly thought I wanted to coach. So I wanted sports psychology to go into coaching. Um, yeah, that's not exactly where I ended up, obviously. Going from, from Denison, I discovered the University of Arizona. And I was able to go out there to visit. We had a January term at that time at Denison. So in January, I went out to the University of Arizona, met Gene, and fell in love with the program, the university, the 80 degrees in January, coming from Michigan. Um, and meeting Gene was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me in terms of, I mean, one, the lifelong friendship we still have and all of her mentoring. And, you know, she's the one that pushed me for a PhD and introduced me to Dan Gould and all of those kinds of things. Um, so she was really instrumental. And that was just, I can remember sitting in her office, you know, talking about, you know, little young me as an undergrad, like my, why I'm interested in sports psych. And I had my honors paper that I was working on and I shared copy with her. And I remember shif her shifting through and going, just kind of smirking in the Jean Williams little smirk going, oh, you've read my work. Oh, flat out panic. Because as an undergrad, you don't think Williams is a real person. Right. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh. And then I was like, just a basket case. I think I held it together enough because she still accepted me. <laughs> um, so that was me getting into sports psych and going through the program. There was a wonderful experience. Um, and I don't know, Gene saw something in my I don't know, I must have had just a glint of interest in research. So she actually took me through the process of submitting an article for publication that, looking back, probably had a very minimal chance of ever getting accepted. Um, but what happened was it did get rejected. But then we ended up gathering more data. And then my thesis emanated from that. So it turned into, and then it sort of like sparked this love of research, um, which obviously I still, you know, has kept me going throughout my, my whole career. She was also really good at like, oh, look, there's Dan Gould. You should go introduce yourself. And she literally pushed me from the back. And I like all but bumped into him like, hi. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I was incredibly shy. Um, I hide that well later in life. But at that time, I'm like, oh, my God, what do I say to this icon in the field that I've just literally been pushed into? <laughs> And you know Dan well enough. He's just laughing and like, oh, hi, great to meet you. So um, the two of them, again, they I learned so much from them, and they certainly created a, a path. And when we think about my path in, in ASP, you know, I grew up with two people. You know, Gene was in the, you know, ground stages of creating ASP. So, of course, she introduced me to it. She talked about it. Um, because of her, I was a charter member. Um, because of her, I presented my thesis at the first conference way back when. Um, and then meeting Dan, of course, he was highly involved. So I was kind of just socialized that this is what you do. You're involved in your organization. You help your organization. And that just, you know, one thing led, led to another. Um, I will say I was in graduate school with some pretty amazing people. Um, Mark Anderson and I were, were Gene students at the time. There were a handful of others, but the two of us are the ones of our year that continued in the field. And then in my graduate program, I started at Illinois. And actually, I followed Dan when he took the job to Greensboro. And I was working with people like Ken Hodge at Illinois, um, Tom, or 
uh, Giannini at Illinois, um, Tom Hansen. And then in Greensboro, my class was Bob Eklund, Jeff Martin, Al Smith, Laura Finch, Sue Jackson, Liz Hart, Ed Acevedo, and I can't even remember everybody. And that was just our sports psych group. Wow. Um, so, I mean, surrounding us in other areas. So it was an incredible environment. <clears throat> we were constantly just goading each other on and playing devil's advocates um, and encouraged each other to just do really great things. And I mean, it's amazing what we've all gone on to accomplish. It's kind of mind boggling. We were all there at the same time. Vicki, for an environment like that, was it competitive or was it, um, you said it was all encouraging, but was there any like competition amongst people in that? Everybody that's such a high achiever, seems like there would have been some that would have gone on there. For the most part, no, there were occasional little people that butt heads over things like that. But as a whole, no, it was really kind of and one of the things I think that Dan was really good at, and I learned this and copied this from him, was he created research groups. And I'm sure you're familiar. And within the research group, you're all working to, you're working as a team to do things and you're pushing each other and helping each other and grumbling together and transcribing together. And, you know, and it just kind of makes you want to work together to help each other. And we all became such good friends that, I mean, I look at us later in life and I've had some differences of opinions with some of these people over just philosophy of science, ways of doing things. And it's always been in a collegial manner. So yeah, surprisingly, it really, it really worked out well. I mean, I think the people around us, you know, you know, Dan Gould and Diane Gill were not encouraging, you know, inter-student competition whatsoever. So they were really helpful to create this really cool environment that um, was pretty amazing. Yeah. Some of the things that happened during my career, and I kind of was trying to think of what are some key points of moments of either change or moments that just kind of sparked me in certain directions. And one of them, one probably one of the biggest was in 1989, no, 19, yeah, 1989, ASP was in Seattle. Um, I was student representative at the time. Not that that really was meaningful, but since this is an ASP interview, um, and that was Dorothy Harris's last conference that she was able to attend, and she was dear friends with with Jean Williams, and so I had met her briefly here and there, um, and she and Bruce Ogilvie held a session off program. And just in the evening, they decided, I mean, they were two, literally the elders of the field at this point, um, two just amazing in terms of their experiences and developing and, and working in the field. And so they literally were found this room in the hotel that was like a study and just had, and I can only describe it as a fireside chat, just whoever wants to join in and people were sitting on the floor and the room was packed. And they brought up all these topics nobody talked about in sport. And I kind of mentioned my early experiences as an athlete, it was very clear that there was a lot of sexism in, in sport. It also was really clear to me and unavoidable, just the heteronormativity of sport. And I was shocked that here we are, sports psychologists, we are being trained to work with athletes and nobody talked about these things. I was like, wait a minute, don't you talk stress management, like that's a huge stressor. We didn't talk racism. We didn't talk any of the isms. It was just teach stress management, teach imagery, things of that sort. Um, 
And then here was Dorothy and Bruce, and all of a sudden they started talking about relationships among people on teams, coach-athlete, inappropriate relationships, um, lesbians in sport. I mean, all these things around sexuality, sexual orientation that nobody ever mentioned. And I walk out of that meeting just like my mind was blown. I'm like, oh my God, people are talking about these things. I've never heard anybody mention any of these concepts prior to that, even though in my own experience, it was clearly there. Um, and I remember walking out of there going, darn, I want a new thesis. I want a new dissertation topic, which at that point I was too far into what I was doing. Uh, but I, but I graduated from, from Greensboro and I had this nagging, like I need to, at that point, I need to do research on lesbians in sport. Obviously it broadened from there to kind of just queerness in sport, LGBTQ issues in sport. But um, that that was a huge turning point for me was like, someone finally said, this is an important thing to talk about. And I'd heard a few people in PE kind of touch at the edges of there's homophobia in sport, um, but not in such a profound way. So that was that was pretty a pretty amazing experience in terms of changing, it totally changed the trajectory of, of where my research went from there. The other thing that happened at that same conference, um, we were talking certification, and that was the year certification passed, I believe. It was either that year or the next year. Um, and I remember in the conversations at that time, the requirements were largely course-based, and it was focused on kind of combining clinical psych and kinesiology. And I just, to be involved in the conversations at that level, um, to be a student on the board with, I mean, the people that were on the board, you know, I was Frank Small, Robin Veely, Dan Gould, um, who else was on? Others that I, I'm, that I have, an, I have, I actually have a picture of all of us on oh. my, um, oh, Kirschenbaum was on, Dan Kirschenbaum. Um, but, um, but to be in a room and listen to them, and at that time it was somewhat of a contested topic. I mean, they were passionate, but not nasty to each other. So it was a passionate conversation on both sides. And very often we tend to hear the side of the people around us, you know, like this is how we do things. So it was really informative to, to hear from this broad group of people. And they would turn to me and go, okay, you're the student. What do you think? I'm like, oh my God, you want me to talk? <laughs> a lot of responsibility. Were, yeah. It was just amazing that, I mean, that they treated me like a member of the board, which is how it should be. But I think from that moment on, it kind of set in my mind a way of how you treat students, how you bring different people into the conversation, and, and even how to debate key topics in the field. Um, so that was an incredible learning experience being, being on the board at, at such a, such a young, young stage in my life. And Dan was the, uh, was president at that time, Dan Gould. Hmm. Let's see other key moments. Um, when Heather and I, Heather Barber and I started collaborating, um, I think I started doing a little bit of research looking at um, lesbian interviewing lesbian athletes in sport, and then Heather and I joined forces, and it just made the research that much stronger. Being having someone to share ideas and debate how to code things and all of that, um, and we set out almost every ASP conference that we went to. We have presented something on some aspect of LGBTQ. 
um, experiences or inclusiveness or something like that. And that was something we set out to do early on. Um, we were rejected once, I think. Um, but for the most part, um, at every conference. Um, and so that just kind of set out our line of research, but also ensured that we talked about queerness during at every conference. It was a select group of people that would come. But every now and then we'd look up and we're like, oh, Dan Kirschenbaum's here. Oh, look, Len Zayakowski's in the room. So it was really cool that, that you know, Ken Revisa would show up to our talks. You know, so there were key people that would then take, you know, I think it was largely supportive of us. Um, I think, you know, they'd been around long enough that they, that it wasn't tons of new information, but it certainly was nice to see some of the, the leaders in the field being more than willing to be there and, and support us and, um, and, you know, be at our presentations. Um, I'm trying to think where you want me to go. I, in terms of being on the ASK boards, I had incredible mentors, and that was another thing that completely shaped how I was in the field. When I was secretary treasurer, which I want to say, when was that? Mid-90s, 95-ish. Um, I mean, the, the presidents that I worked with, Gene was going off the board when I came on, and then I forget the exact order, but Tara Scanlon, Penny McCullough, and Mo Weiss were the three presidents I worked with. You could not ask for better mentors. Um, and the things, I, I mean, I used to laugh, writing minutes for Tara Scanlon, I could have written an article in the time it took me to write the minutes with the detail she wanted. Um, <laughs> it, it taught me a lot. It taught me the importance of getting things right. And details are important when you're putting forth minutes. Um, today, I, I don't think people are as on top of that today because we just record things. And if you have to, which simplifies it in a way, but there's something about reading and then everybody reading and voting on the minutes that you just have to like pay attention to them. But yeah, learning from them certainly mentored me in how to be a successful female in the field because they were all the first presidents, first female presidents. It took 10 years. So there are certain ways of being accepted um, and ways to do things. And it wasn't just being a female, but being a good young professional in giving back to the organization. Hmm. The trailblazer study you mentioned, <laughs> um, Quiet Competence. Clearly, hands down, that is the best article. That, that is, those, that's the research study I am most proud of doing because of what it did for those women. Um, it was incredible. Our trailblazers um, were the women who were at the ground level creating the field who never got written into our history. And Diane Whaley and I worked together on that. And it was really obvious. We, we did this. We did a poll of people asking who we should interview. And we had our list. And everybody we asked came down with the same people, boom, hands down. There was, there was no questions asked um, who, to, who to interview. And to write them into the history, it was like our privilege to be able to do that. We did, our interviews with them were anywhere from five to eight hours with breaks, um, sometimes over two days. We would fly to their house. We would meet them at conferences. Um, but it was just an amazing opportunity. And they were so funny because, I mean, they continued to mentor us even while they were being the participants. <laughs> so they, they were wonderful. And to learn about their experiences. And they were 
clearly pre-Title IX as professionals when it was legal to be sexist. And boy, they put up with stuff. And for them to realize that they all put up with the same kinds of stuff, I don't think they had talked to each other about that as a whole group. We got to go out to dinner. Um, the academy meetings were in Tucson. And everyone except Joan, who was in England at that point, was able to come. And we just got this giant table, put a few bottles of wine on the table and let them, and Diane and I just sat back and let them talk. And it was amazing. And I don't think they had ever done that, all of them at one time in one place. you know. And then the next day we did a focus group. We did like a three hour focus group with all of them. And they were just, um, it was amazing to, to learn from them, but also to give them that experience. And then a few of them told me that they were able to then use that, look, I've been named as a trailblazer to help them towards other milestones in their own careers, which it was really nice to have been able to do that. Hmm. I love that, um, that you brought the article up because when we set out to do this project, it was kind of twofold. One was just creating this history and then two, getting an opportunity to learn from people who either are not involved in the field anymore or still are, because there's so much of this history that is all learned through word of mouth. Um, so I feel incredibly fortunate that Dr. Robin Veely and Melissa Chase were two of my advisors and having those strong female um, voices, but not everyone has that. And I think it's so appropriate that yesterday was um, International Women's yes. Day and we're having this conversation today because I think as females in the fields, a lot of these things I think have changed. And unfortunately, a lot of these things have not changed. Um, yeah. And so I think the more that we can acknowledge women in the field and women who have were trail trailblazers and thinking about this history, it's just, it's so important. So I'm so grateful that you wrote this article and I can only imagine like what that dinner would have been like and just thinking about <laughs> like what that would look like even now. Um, and just like really celebrating that so much of our history is, is on the backs of women's labor, which oftentimes goes unnoticed and unappreciated and undervalued. So, so thank you for writing that and then sharing, sharing a bit of that process with us. Sure. Um, I don't know if you want me to get into this now or wait till later. I mean, but the other clear moment that influenced my sports site career was when I stepped off, resigned from my presidency. Let's, let's can, yeah, let's wait for that one if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, but I love the idea. Like, there's so many of your stories that you share. So, um, I, yeah, I, I can see myself there. I love the one of Bruce and Dot Harris. Like, that just seems like the knowledge that could be in one room at one time is unbelievable. Like, those are the things that I wish you could manufacture in some way. Like you said, it was just an organic thing, but man, I can't imagine how much you took from that. And it sounds like it even changed the way your career went, which is, is mm -hmm. so illuminating that those things happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was doing competitive anxiety research up until then. <laughs> how your path changes with one, one, uh, one experience. It's amazing. Oh. Um, it just, I feel like I have so many questions about this, and but um, I'll try to limit some of them. So when you were in this room, was it almost like you were like granted permission to study these isms and it was like you knew that it mattered but didn't know if there was like room for it or was it something that you had always had interest in? I guess like what was it like a light bulb moment for you? How did that come about? It was definitely a light bulb moment. Um, I mean, there was cl a clear realization in, that I had that like, something's not quite right here. Um, and there were not openly lesbian 
people around, openly gay people. Um, at that time, we talked primarily the lesbian and gay, but openly queer people. I mean, most there were they they were there, but they were mostly closeted, and that was the role model of you know be quiet, keep your head down, just do your job, don't talk about your personal life. And then for them to kind of open the door to like, maybe it's important for people to be their whole selves and to talk about these things. And as a field to think about how do we create environments where people don't have to hide who they are. So that definitely was a, was a, a light bulb moment. And I remember leaving there thinking, okay, how do I go about doing this? Because I was trained as a positivist quantitative researcher back then. That's predominantly what our train what pretty much all my training was at that time. Dan was just starting to do a little bit of qualitative. So I started to get some very beginnings of that, but I wasn't really involved in his, re his research at that time, other than transcribing, um, because I was just the timing of it. So, um, yeah. And I remember talking to various people and going, I think I want to study lesbians. And they're like, don't do it. <laughs> and it wasn't in a negative condescending way. It was all about you might not get tenure. You're well, at first it's like you might not get a job and then you might not get tenure. And then what if you're out of the field and then what are you going to do? So there was all this concern as to what would happen if I did this. And I can remember um, talking to some people early on that were just like, yeah, no, wait a while, get, get, get some, get, you know, get a bit of, you know, you get some publications, get yourself on firm standing in the field and revisit it, you know, after tenure. Hmm. Well, I was not a patient person. <laughs> <laughs> so I started at Bowling Green in 1990. I started interviewing lesbian athletes 90, I think, um, by the spring of 1992. So within a little over a year. Um, and the first publication came out, I think around 94 or 95, somewhere around there. But um, yeah, I just... I just wasn't, wasn't patient. And I just kind of felt like, yeah, I want to do this. And I can, I can remember having the conversation with Jean Williams, you know, the first one was, I want to do this. And she's like, be smart. Hmm. And it, it was totally in a caring, supportive way. And then it was a couple of years later and I had already had the data and I'm like, Jean, this is what I'm doing. She's like, I'm going to support you, but this is going to be a hard road. Hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that eventually I learned, well, and this is part of this is just my research training, is that it has to be absolutely solid. If people don't like what you're writing about, if they can tear apart your method also, you're never, ever going to get published. If, they, if your method is sound, so I mean, and that's one of the things that Heather and I always pushed each other to do, is like, we have to be solid. And if the research is solid, it will get published somewhere. Um, not much of my queer research is published in sports psychology. Most of it is either in interdisciplinary journals, feminist or, you know, women's sport journals. Um, so yeah, the field wasn't always open to our work, but like I said, we, we still were able to present at a, quite a few conferences. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, that, that particular, like, oh my gosh, we can, we can study this. We can, we can talk about lesbians in sport and homo negativism and things like that and ultimately do research in it. Yeah. really came out of that, that chat with, with Dot and Bruce. 
Thank you for sharing that story. That's so, yeah, I have so many questions. I think one that I was thinking the whole time and then you kind of answered it is how did the field come at it? Because it's interesting that you had advisors. And one thing that stood out through your background is you said, basically you had mentors at every single stage that really supported you. And even those people were, were worried about it. And so I can only imagine what blind peer reviewers seeing this stuff would think of. Oh, they kept telling me this is sociology. It doesn't belong in sports psych journals. Hmm. Um, and even the early work that Heather and I did was grounded in social identity theory, which is a mainstream social psych theory. And they're like, no, this is socio sociology. We don't, this doesn't belong in sports psychology. And I went, we went through all the major psych, sports psych journals. Our first um, paper that, that Heather and I did that um, outlined kind of our conceptual framework we we worked on it. It was years because we we would get together at conferences and we would show up a day before the conference and lock ourselves in a room and, and work work on the paper together. And what would happen is we'd revise it, we'd resubmit it, and one by one by one, um, it eventually got into Quest. But mm -hmm. all of the sports psych journals, um, it was a battle. Hmm. Hmm. I can't imagine like the determination to like keep doing that even though like you're getting all of these like trepidations and people saying no, but just to like keep persevering through that, it's just, it's incredible. And we're, you know, lucky that you did. I don't know if we were arrogant and just knew it should be published <laughs> or if we were just silly and just kept running into the same brick wall, but we knew in sociology, this was being published and we knew we could go that route if, but it was like, yeah, we're needed over here in sports psych. Um, I've lost a lot of students over the years that have gone into more sociology related areas and jobs and grad programs because it's easier. It's always been easier. Even today, it's easier. Hmm. Well, I think talking about the field kind of transitions us really nicely into our next question. So um, it's interesting that you have been involved in this from so many levels, you know, student rep, and then your mentors being key pioneers in this. And so we want to kind of get a snapshot of the field prior to your presidential service. So how would you describe the field of sport and exercise psychology and really ask prior to you running for president? And just think about those things that are, you know, relevant or significant at that time for you. It was very different than it is today. Um, at that time, there were three major areas within the organization. So exercise psych, social psych, and performance enhancement. And they were all valued equally. Um, it was a very strong research to practice model. And the, the board was always a mix of clinical psych and kinesiology people. Um, we, we hadn't embraced the counseling folks quite as much yet. Some, there were people who had counseling degrees, um, but predominantly clinical psych and kinesiology trained people. Um, and that was a really strong foundation. So the conferences were very strongly research-based. And then even the people that did more applied presentations, it was a theory to practice approach or research to practice approach. Um, the certification was still new. So there was a lot of discussion about, we were still trying to come to terms with what are the ethics? Not, not what is ethical, but how do we create an eth the ethics document? Um, how even, you know, even we consistently kept going back to certification as well. You know, are, 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 do things need to be tweaked? Is it balanced? Do we need to change things? So 
the certification in the early days, there were very few certified consultants compared to today. And it wasn't something we all thought when this was created, and again, I was a student, so the professionals around me all thought that we're going to create this certification and it'll be like ACSM. There's a certification and you need that certification to get a job. And well, the jobs didn't come and the people who were working as applied sports site people, most of them were not certified. So it never really took off for a really long time. So there was constant discussion of trying to figure out like why or better yet, how and just to like date myself, we didn't have the internet. <laughs> so promoting ourselves back then was not as easy. And we weren't business people. We were, you know, most of us were academics in psychology or kinesiology, and we weren't real good at promoting ourselves and promoting the field. Um, so there was a lot of push to try to figure that out. But at the same time, I think the during during the conferences, it was just really a much broader mix of sports psychology, whereas today I see it very narrowly defined as a pr predominantly a focus on elite sport when you go to the conference or when I've looked at conference um, proceedings. But um, at that time, you know, Dan was doing a lot of work on youth sport and there was a lot of information on that. One of the things that I loved about the early conferences is there there were certain people that would bring a research group in. Um, so like, it was like Tara Scanlon, Mo Weiss, Dan Gould. Um, they would do a research study with several students and they would have a group of people do a symposium and they talk about this big study or maybe there's multiple data collections and they would do this seminar or symposium of here's the research, here's what our findings and here's the practical application from it. So it was really clear. And I would go to conferences and I would just look for their presentations. It didn't even matter what the topic, you knew you were going to learn something. Um, so there was, there was that really strong research to practice that I still, I mean, I still tell my students, they probably are bored of hearing, you know, theory to practice. You have to understand the theory and the research before you can be good at putting this stuff to work. And so the field was much more focused on that and conferences were much more reflective of that. So there was broader diversity of what we saw being presented. Um, so I think that was a, a one big piece to it. And I also thought just before I became president, we were in this kind of time period of transition. Um, as I mentioned, the, the internet was just coming to be. So we were just starting to develop an online presence, you know, like websites. Oh, we need a website. and. I think it was Penny McCullough worked with a graduate student who created a website for us. It was informational. It was fine for the time. Um, we outgrew it, but nobody knew what to do because again, we were, we were a bunch of academics that had no idea how to create a website um, or even what should go into a good website. So we were trying to figure, we we're in the transition into just the technolo technology technology age. I don't know if you'd call it that, but into being much more electronic, much more, I mean, and forget about today, social media and all that. I mean, it's a completely different world. We're also in a transition financially. Um, before I became president and when I was secretary treasurer, most of our income came from the conference. 
And the journal did not make money. The journal consistently lost money back then. But that was okay because the conference would make money and it kind of balanced it out. Later, we shifted to um, a different financial scene where the journal was starting to make more money. And then there were lots of other things that we were doing that were making money and um, had the ability to offer grants and things like that. So we were kind of in this financial shift. And then the other piece is that slightly before, very soon before I became president, we hired our first executive director. And that changed a lot of the workings of how the board did their business. And I mentioned, I mean, the the people that I worked with as presidents, whether we go back to Dan Gould and then looking in terms of Gene Williams, Tara Scanlon, Mo Weiss, Penny McCullough, um, it was a lot of work. I mean, and that's what's expected when you're on a board. But they did everything that the executive director did practically. Um, and there were things that we that I was just used to, like, we just do this. And part of it was a control thing. And not in a bad way, but like for finances, for example, we should know where our money's going. We should know every detail, not just a broad category income. <laughs> you know, so in the shift, some people were a little more comfortable about like, yeah, the executive director will take care of that. So we we're seeing kind of the shift in how the board even works. So I think that kind of defines a lot of what I was walking into at the time. And actually, I went back and I found my slides for my presidential address that reminded me of most of that. <laughs> oh, great. So then speaking of that, what specifically motivated you to run for president? <laughs> um, it sort of seemed a natural trajectory, and I don't want to sound arrogant about this, but um, you know, I was a student rep. I, between 1986 through just before I became president or even through my presidency, I'd been on board. I'd either been on the board or a committee member every year. Um, I was always fully and in, fully involved and engaged. Um, and then people started asking me to be president. And at that time I was the editor of the sports psychologist, the journal, and was like, no, I cannot do both of these. So I kept, they kept being asked and I kept going, nope, 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 not while I'm editor. And as soon as I announced my term was over, boom, they came back and asked, I'm like, <laughs> let me think about this. And, um, a part of it was, it wasn't just like, oh, I'm expected to do this. It was that mentoring that I had that you give back to the field in, what, when, in whatever ways you can. And if people thought that I was going to be a good leader, I should be willing to put that in and do what I can to help the field. Um, I'd already been on the board as secretary treasurer. I wasn't going to run for a different position. Um, this opportunity opened up. It was another way to give back to a field that I felt at that time was, was very supportive of, of what I was doing and had given me lots of opportunities to do what I'm doing. Uh -huh. So I love that you said you found your slides that were from that time. So could you kind of tell us when you were, you decide to run, somebody has asked, you said, finally, it might be the right time. There's this opportunity. What were you hoping to accomplish then as your time as asked president? Uh, let's see. I, I copied my slides into my notes here. <laughs> One of the things I talked about, and I kind of label this a return to our roots. 
I think we were losing our ASP identity at that point. We had lots and lots and lots of things going on, but we didn't have a clear path as to who we were. We were starting to think more like we started to have some people for counseling saying we should go this way. We were, had the certification that we were trying to figure out how to work. There just seemed to be a lot of things going on, a lot of um, desperate things pulling our attention in a lot of direction. And some of that was exciting. I mean, we needed to pay more attention to a lot of things. But at the same time, we also needed to like, what's our point? <laughs> like we, we, need a, we, we need a common goal. Um, and one of the things that I really wanted to, to focus on is what is the ASP identity? We were playing with logos at the time, um, which was part of that. Um, and I wanted transparency. We had gone through a couple of presidents before me where people didn't feel like they had an understanding of the behind the scenes. And I don't know if they necessarily did anything wrong because there was just, there's so much to do as president. I'm sure you've heard lots about this. And it's, and I don't say that in a bad way. It's just, that's what the position is that putting that out there and communication, it's not intentional to not to communicate, but you just run out of time. And like I said, we didn't have the easy communication routes that we have today. So um, transparency was a large goal. Part of it is, as I mentioned, we're going through kind of a financial transition and executive director transition. And that was a huge expense. And people were like, why are we spending $50,000 a year, something like that, for an executive director? That's huge. Why are we spending that kind of money? So we also had needed to show that we could afford that before, you know, to bring people on board. So I think getting that financial transparency out there, talking about where we're at with the journal, um, keeping the conversations of the board more open so that, or getting information out that people could kind of follow what were the major decisions being made? Um, how can you give us feedback? Those kinds of things. Um, so that was a major, one of the major plans that I had was try to develop better communication between the board and the, and the membership. And again, I don't think the people before me were horrible at it, but I just think circumstances and there were new questions because of just the transitioning we were going through. So part of that led to one of my major um, things that I was focused on was creating a new website. No, I was not creating it. We hired someone that could do that, but we hired this group that was going to develop an interactive website for us. And I pulled in people from wherever I could find. And we got, I tried to get as creative as possible. Like, what if we have a place where general people, general sporting people can submit questions and we have an expert answering questions and we have a list of people that like, you're on call this day and you're on call this day. Um, we had we just tried to come up with as many creative things like that, ways that members could interact with each other, ways that students, we, we were trying to create a student section where students could interact with a member that the professionals couldn't be a part of, as well as opportunities for the groups to interact. So we're trying to come up with as creative as we could. And this web, web group was really wonderful in coming up with these great ideas. Um, I also was able to hire a consultant, um, someone I knew who was a... Um, IT person. So was able, cause like my, the web guy could have told me anything. I'd be like, Oh, fine. We'll spend thousands of dollars on that. So I had someone disconnected from them, but could say, yeah, that's a good idea. Or 
what if they try this? So, um, so we, we, we put the money into and created the opportunity to move from just a website that has information to something that was truly interactive um, and really membership friendly. Um, we created, uh, I must have created 15 different committees of people working on different segments. And part of that, part of my goal was to bring as many people into the workings rather than it's one, the board didn't have the enough hours in the day to do it by ourselves, but there are other people with different expertise and the students should create what they want and different groups and different, every committee was originally going to have its own little space um, so that they could communicate um, through via the website and update. So they didn't have to send it one place and get in a queue and wait for your section to be updated. We, it was incredibly creative and I'm just going to say forward thinking. And I'm saying that because it wasn't me that created it, um, that we had experts around us. Um, and so that was a huge, I mean, I spent a year of incredible amounts of time on that because it sounded like such a great thing. And I hate to say it, it all fell apart and that didn't happen in the long run. Um, long story if you want it, but, um, but again, I, a major goal of mine was to get more people involved, to get people excited to be asked members, to get people to feel some ownership and to feel like they had a voice in what we were doing and to be more transparent so that people could ask questions, forward opinions, share their areas of expertise. Cause there's, again, so people had people, our membership at the time and probably still today have so many things that you know, someone was a web expert. I know nothing about that. So finding people that, that could do these things. Um, we also started the, um, the journal Sports Psychology in Action. And I wasn't the one that created the idea for that, but we had the idea and it was moving slowly. So we were able to, while I was on the board in my presidency, we were able to get Melissa Chase to agree to be the, the editor and get that off the ground. And it's turned into a very... Um, successful journal since then. So getting that started was was pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. You you talked about so many things there, the transparency, the identity, the journal sports psych in action as an afterthought, which I think is one of the best things that ASK does right now, I think is there. Um, walk us through kind of what else happened during your presidency? What were the main accomplishments? And then what led to um, you stepping off, I guess? It's hard to say what my main accomplishments were. One of the interesting things, and I'm sure it's not just our organization, but you come in as president of luck and you're like, okay, I got to come up with what's my agenda. And then you have one year as a president to do that agenda. And then your past president and the past president year, your focus is on running the conference. And then each new person comes in with their own agenda. So unless you have some consistency of like, oh, we're doing the same things. So I had this agenda that, the people around me weren't embracing. I mean, I had, like I said, I had lots of people all over the organization, chairing committees, being involved, pitching in, doing various different things. But as far as the board following up, I hate to say it, I feel like almost everything I tried to start once I resigned just got dropped. Mm. So I feel like I kind of didn't really leave a whole lot of legacy behind me. Um, yeah, it was kind of an interesting, awkward presidency, so to speak. We had a new executive director and Susan Reese came in and her job was to assist the board and offload board members. And there's a lot of things the executive director could do, 
Um, and she, well, we, we were in this space where, as I said, being, being on a board is a lot of work. And so her group came in and they were very good about going, oh, we can do that. And we can do that. And we can do that. And so people on the board were like, they're going to do it. Cool. And so we kind of started losing that connection. It was sort of like, oh, we'd have questions. It's like, well, Susan can answer that. Oh, well, Susan will do that. And at that time we had the, I can't remember the organization's name, but the group that was doing our website, I had been working with them for a year and a half. And then Susan Reese, their group was supposed to just facilitate, like, cause we had this so in progress and her group was supposed to facilitate you know, sharing of information, helping combine, like we already had a membership database and things. So how do we get that into the new website, things like that. And I don't know if she was necessarily obstructionist, which partially, but just completely uncooperative. Um, and eventually after I had resigned, um, the web person finally was like, they just walked away. They're like, we can't, we can't work with this person. And underneath it all, Susan's group wanted to run the website. And they, they actually, I mean, cause we put out bids for people to run the website and they put a bid in and they did not have the expertise to create the website. Once it was up and running, they could have maintained it. They could have kept the membership or the um, databases and all that, that would have been fine. But actually creating all the interactive things that we had on our agenda, they didn't have that expertise. So we went with this other group, in my opinion, she undermined them because then they ended up running the website and getting paid for that. So she did that on a number of things. So we also had a group, Centennial, used to run our conferences. And once we moved from the point that once upon a time, the secretary treasurer did all the finances for the conference, that, that was me at that time, me and earlier at that time. Once Centennial came on, then they did the, you know, they created the, um, how we did registration. They did all the registration, which let me tell you, registration for a conference, even back then, a smaller conference takes a lot of time. Um, so, and they were great. They might, they, we must've worked with them 10, 15 years. They did a wonderful job. I don't know if it was that long, but quite a long time. And then once again, the Reese group could have done what they did, but we already had Centennial and like them. But Reese made it so difficult for them to work with ASP that they quit too. Hmm. So she was doing things, they were doing things, the Reese group were doing things to take over as opposed to facilitate what we already had in, in place. And I guarantee there are other people that will give you a very different explanation of what went on. But from, from my experience, there was a lot of just not being, not cooperating. And we hit a point where, and like Centennial and the web people actually both left ASP after I had resigned. So they were, so they were still there while I was there trying to make things work. But I, I get an earload through that, that there were difficulties in communication. As my presidency year was ending and we were at the conference, we were gonna go into the next year where I was gonna be the chair of the conference Diane Whaley was, and I forget the name of the position because it's changed names since then, but she was going to be the um, program chair. And so the two of us had real difficulty working with Susan Reese, who was our executive director. And 
Susan would do things. So for example, Diane oversaw the grants, the research grants. And so she, you know, she had a committee that would review the grants. They gave back the feedback. So Diane knew who gets a letter saying you've been funded. Here's how much, or thank you for applying. You're not going to be funded. And so Susan Reese, the, one of the nice things about the having an executive director is they would send those kinds of letters that, you know, didn't have to, that were minimally personalized. So, you know, plug in the name of their, their, their um, topic. And so, um, so, you know, things were running and Diane's like, it's getting a little late. And have we sent out the letters and I haven't heard anything. And Diane, her, um, Susan Reese, the executive director is like, oh, all under control. I've sent out the letters. Don't worry about it. And like three weeks later, Diane would hear from someone, I've, I haven't heard anything, what's happening? And now she's looking bad because the feedback from her, organ, her, her office is not coming through. So Diane would flat out lie to Diane. There were things that I would need cooperation with that she wouldn't return my calls. She wouldn't offer support. And it was just getting difficult. And now we were going into a situation where Diane and I were the number two, one and two people running the conference with an executive director that was not cooperating. And so I knew I, I hit a point where, and, and we do this with students, we do this with other people where you try and you try and try and say, I'm not the person to be the point. I need somebody to help with communication here to either come to a compromise or to you know, have an open discussion. But we would try within, within the board and Susan Reese sat in on every board meeting so it was really difficult to talk about the problems because she sat in on those meetings. And, and so and even the few times that we asked her to leave, it was just really awkward. Like, can you leave so we can talk about you? I mean, <laughs> while we didn't say that, it was pretty obvious. Um, and the rest of the board loved her. Hmm. Oh, she's so helpful. She does this. She's wonderful. And she was communicative with other people, but not with the two of us. So at one point I talked to the other presidents, so Bert Geigas and Sean McCann, and Sean was brand new, just voted in, president-elect, um, and said, look, I'm having a really hard time communicating. If we're gonna make this conference work, I need help. I need someone to either talk to her about this or we need to come up with a way to make this work. And they're both like, oh, well, we don't wanna like compromise our relationship with her, so no, we're not gonna help was pretty much what they told me. They told me that, and it was in a, at this time we were having telephone conferences because we didn't, we, we didn't have Zoom yet. Um, so we were having telephone um, conferences. And so I was just the presidents and they said that I'm like, I'm done. I'm quitting. I, I can't work with these people. They're not going to support me. I am done. Um, and my partner, Diane at the time was like, she, she, she knew exactly what to do. And all of a sudden she hands me the phone. She goes, Oh, my wife is on the phone. <laughs> so, Mo talked me down <laughs> had a really good conversation about and Mo's really good at problem solving and good with people skills so she gave me all these you're like okay let's try this don't don't walk out right now let's try all these things I'm like okay okay I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna be okay and I kind of like sat back and I'm like I don't like this but I'm not gonna give up just yet because I, I'm past president I have to run the conference <laughs> and um the following week, we had a conference call with the whole board. This was, it might have been our second, might have even been our first, first or second conference call with the new board. So post-conference, new people on board, 
at least a third of the board, and we added a couple of new positions. So almost half the board were brand new people. And we're having a conference call and we're talking through things. And we're, and Diane and I are bringing up, Diane Whaley and I are bringing up, we're having these communication problems. We've tried to do these things. These are the things that are falling apart. And we must have spent 40 minutes of telling them these are problems that we need help on. And apparently, I didn't know it yet, but then Bert, um, Bert Geigas, who was president, mentioned that, well, I've also talked with Susan and if she can't do X, Y, Z, I can't even remember what it was, she's going to resign. Well, the rest of the board was like, oh my God, what are we going to do without our executive director? The people who had been on the board longer, which again was a small number of us, this was the third time she threw that out. If I don't get my way, I'm resigning. And every time the board went, no, I don't want to do all that work myself, or oh my God, we don't have time to find a new person, um, or go through the expense and the process. So for whatever reason, the board kept coming back going, oh no, we're going to keep you. So we go through this telephone conversation. We spend 40 minutes telling them we have all these problems we need help with. And Bert says, well, it's getting close to the end. We need to vote. Are we going to support Susan, the executive director? Yes or no? And so he did a, I mean, it's, it was a phone, on phone conversation. So he did a voice. And he started one by one asking everyone. He started with the least powerful people on the board and worked his way up to the president. So he started with the students, you know, and at that time the students had a one-year term. So they're brand new going, okay. And then we worked our way up and yes, yes, yes. Diane and I said, no, yes, yes, yes. Mm. So no, no signs of even hearing anything Diane and I said, no, even like, we need to figure out a way to make this work. Just yes, we support this executive director. Well, that was that was the what broke the camel's back. So we hung up, and within 30 seconds, Diane redialed me and said, "I quit. I'm done." I'm like, "That's how I felt last week. I got talked down, but I am rising right back there with you." I said, "Okay, let's take 24 hours. Let's not make a rash decision. Let's sit on it for 24 hours." And let's go talk to people and get advice. Diane ran to her mentors. I ran to my mentors. Between the two of us, we probably talked to 10 different people. Some of them were former ASP presidents. Some of them were people I worked with who were presidents of their organizations. Some were our, like our chairs. Some were people that we... So it was across not just sports-like people, but we everything from, like I said, former past presidents through people close to us that worked on boards like this. Not one person said stay. Every single one of them said, if I were you, I'd leave too. Wow. So, so we, yeah, and some of these people were people that were really, you know, heartfelt, strong with ASP. And they're like, yeah, this, because, and a big part of it was like, we're going to be supposed to, we're supposed to run the conference. The conference is our major money-making thing at the time. And we're doing it with someone who's not going to support us. It's not going to work. Hmm. And the board's not going to support us. So we are out here with no safety net. Can't trust anything's going to happen the way we want it to. It's going to be a disaster for the organization. And we're pissed off and we don't want to work with these people anymore. So, um, so the next day we wrote our letter of resignation to the board. And... One person came back and was like, oh my gosh, this was really bad. We shouldn't have voted this way. We're sorry. I'm sorry you got treated this way. 
and it was a student member. Tucker Redding was the only one that actually came back in an empathetic manner. Wow. Now, Bert was like, oh, my God, we need you. Who's going to run the conference? We need you. We need you. And he tried to enlist Jean Williams, like, you need to talk to her. And Jean's like, yeah, nope, can't do that right now. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, totally. And like, no, you know, sorry, the board has to has to figure out what you all want to do. Um, and I mean, if I hate to say it, but it got to a point I just stopped answering Bert's phone calls. It was like, no, I, I'm not changing my mind at this point. Um, and the other piece to this and one will never, ever know, but there were two open lesbians on the board, Diane and I, that Susan Reese would not work with. She worked with everyone else. Was it personality? Was it we did things very differently? Was she homonegative? It's hard to say, but it's hard to throw that off the table. Hmm. Um, so I don't know. I mean, but there were enough things that was just like, no, this isn't, this isn't going to work. So we walked away, the board kind of reconfigured. Um, they were able to get Marty Ewing to come back for another past presidency year and run the conference. Um, but I, I truly feel like it would have been a disaster had Diane and I tried to work with both a board and an executive director that were not gonna support what we were doing or not, not help us do what we were doing. So that was kind of the, the resignation story. I appreciate your transparency and sharing your perspective. I can't imagine being in that position because the thing that I keep coming back to is if that conference doesn't go well, the person they blame again is not the executive director either. There's all these problems that members aren't going to see except the forward facing conference. And so it puts you at such a disadvantage as well of if we're heading down this pathway and I see it, what can I even do? Even if you do your best work and it ends up being 20% better than what you could have been doing, they're not going to see that change. They just see the end result, which puts you at such a terrible position for that. And had we, I mean, we were kind of like, well, let's just cut now because what if we try to do it and it falls apart? Then someone's got to pick up lots more pieces. Hmm. Whereas at this point, we they hadn't really started coordinating the conference yet. It was kind of like, okay, here are the next steps to do. So it was before anything could go wrong and interfere with the conference. But yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, when the board made it 100% clear that nobody was going to support us except for the one student rep, um, it wasn't going to work. Hmm. It, it was really hard. I mean, ASP was, I feel like I was brought up with ASP. Yeah. You know, that's, I started there as a, as a master's student and, you know, presented every year, was on committees and did everything I could to be an active member of ASP. And then all of a sudden it was gone. It was, I did... I did um, go back. Diane and I both agreed we would go to the next conference, um, that we needed to show our face that we, we um, for lots of reasons. Um, but yeah, it, it was not a fun conference. It was, it was really difficult to be there because I would listen to the board members. And I initially said, I'll go to the conference, but I'm not going to the past president's meeting. I'm not going to the board meeting or the, um, the business meeting. And I'm not going to the fellows meeting. And uh, I told that to Jean Williams. She said, no, those are exactly the places you need to be seen. Hmm. Darn it, you're right again. <laughs> um, so I went and I, I remember that was the year we were in St. Louis and two of the invited speakers were dear friends of mine from the UK. Celia Brackenridge and Annette Mutry were guest speakers. And I remember sitting in the business meeting and Celia sat next to me and um, uh, she died too young. So she was 
a big bear of a athletic big mama bear person and just took over her just her persona she like she'd walk in the room and you just know that's greatness was there. And she just sat next to me like, okay, I've been feeling secure next to her. And she just every now and then kind of put her arm around and go, you okay? You okay? I'm like, lies. I can't believe anything. I can't believe they're telling people this. So there was spin. And part of it was different people doing different things, coming at it from different ways, had completely different perspectives. But the board at that time, compared to what how Diane and I perceived it, to you would get two 100% completely opposite stories as to what happened and how things, how, how we evolved to that, to that situation. Vicki, and I would assume this is the case, but so was that the fracture? And since then you went to that conference and have kind of said no more with the ASP or how, how's that relationship been in the intervening years? It's been a while, but I can't imagine that those feelings and those, the way you're treated in that way dissipates anytime. Yeah, so the St. Louis conference was 2008. And then I did not go back until 2015 when it was in Indianapolis. Um, Diane Whaley and I, because of the Trailblazer study, we did go to, oh, where was it? It was somewhere in New England, Rhode Island, I want to say. No Providence? Providence? Yes. We did go, we did not, we did not register for the conference, but we hung out to, she and I, we decided, you know, like I said, Heather and I would go stay in a hotel and work on our, on, um, prior to a conference and work on our papers. Well, Whaley and I would do that also. Mm-hmm. And um, so we went and we were like, okay, we're going to work on the paper, but we're also going to be able to see our trailblazers. And we have friends here that we can get together with. So we did not go to the conference. We did not register, um, but we were visible around, around a little bit. Um, but yeah, between 2008, I did not go to a conference until 2015, and I've n- not been back since. In 2015, um, one, it was close enough for me to drive, so that was easy to get there. But also, um, Diane Whaley, Heather Barber, and I, I mean, the three of us have been best buds since we were close enough in time in, since grad school, different places, but um, all got to know each other very young in our um, professional sports site careers. And so we decided, okay, let's give it a try all together. <laughs> and so, um, so we went back and the two of them had been to more than I had, but I'm like, okay, if they're going to be there, let's, let's just do this. And I just wasn't interested in most of what they had to offer. Um, there was, I think, was it that conference that Cheryl Swoops talked? So it's sort of, I kind of felt like, okay, we have a lesbian speaking done. We've done our diversity. Um, and it just, yeah, there was just, it wasn't, I, I just wasn't interested in most of what was going on. And so I didn't see the strong research. And from my understanding, it's it's only gotten even more different. Um, that's when they st- started to see things started moving more and more counseling oriented. Oh, and there's a whole nother transition that I, that I haven't mentioned. Um, there also was the transition from going from, like I said, with the three different focuses, foci, um, exercise psych, social psych, and um, performance enhancement to a very narrow counseling focused performance enhancement. That was starting while I was president. And it wasn't, if you look shortly after I was president, almost every president since then is from counseling. And like Rob Schenke 
pops in there with his cultural sports like, but there was nothing on either side to support anything he wanted to do. So all of his great initiatives never got followed up. So little by little, more and more counseling people got put on the board. And the background of how people get nominated is, so there's a process to nominate people. There's a call for nominations, um, but the board decides who to, who to put on the ballot. So if you keep putting counseling people against counseling people, eventually you're going to get more and more counseling people. And I realize that's a really cynical view, but I'm pretty sure that's what happened over time. So that changed, honestly, that changed the trajectory of the field. Hmm. That's when we started seeing jobs that you have to have a counseling degree and a PhD. Because, and I'll say the Big Sky Group was a huge impetus toward towards doing that. Um, Little by little, um, Chris Carr um, and others, they got, the, they got the, the voice of the NCAA. And I'm trying to remember what year this was. So somewhere around 2010-ish maybe, um, when the NCAA first started talking about athlete mental health and they started having um, conference mental health summits. So I'm in the MAC conference, Mid-American conference, um, because I was my, doing some sports psych work with some athletes. Um, I got invited to go with some of our athletics department to the Mac, the very first Mac sports like summit. And I can remember in there, and I forget his name, the um, head of the NCA medical team who um, promotes health, the, kind of the health and well-being. But he was kind of doing introductory talks and he was talking and he said something, you know, mental health is really important and I'm really glad we're starting to pay more attention and we have all of you to help us. And what we need is we need more mental health people, not sports psychologists. This is a room full of predominantly at that time, athletic directors and athletic trainers for the most part, um, at least at that time. And I'm like, Everyone at my table looked at me and went, huh? So most of the group had no idea what he was talking about. But I'm like, they've gotten to the NCA and they said, you no longer want performance enhancement. You only want mental health and you only want people who are counseling trained or clinical psych trained. And we've watched the job market get narrower and narrower since then. You know, so now, I mean, my students, I feel terrible. You need a degree in counseling. You need sports psych. Some places want you to have a PhD and you need to get licensed. Now you might get a job. I mean, that's insane. But, um, and what's happened is it's, we've gone down this very narrow trajectory. So, I mean, so that was starting to happen also. And the more narrow the field started to become, the less interested it's. I have never been interested in, I shouldn't say that. My main interests have never been mainstream sports psych. Um, I've always done, been more interested in feminist sports psych, um, social justice issues, queerness in sport, things like that, that were never performance enhancement. And while I spent a lot of time over the years working with athletes, I enjoyed doing that. That was not my main focus. And so as the conference got narrower and narrower, I just had no interest. So I went back to Ind Indianapolis. There was very little that I was interested in seeing. So we ended up, I had a great time, Heather and Diane and I hung out and caught up and looked at the program and going, yeah, nothing this session. Let's go for a walk. <laughs> I um I 
echo Eric's sentiments. I appreciate you sharing all this with us. I think one thing that sometimes gets lost when we're talking about these leadership positions in ASP is that these are all volunteer positions. And so to put yourself as a volunteer doing all of this work and not feeling supported by the executive director and the rest of the board, it's like, at what point, which you came to, is it no longer worth, you know, your own mental health and well-being and caring for the field is still important, but it can't outweigh the fact that this is something that you're doing out of a service to the fields. Um, so it's, it's disappointing um, to say the least about that lack of support. Um, and I just can't help but wonder um, where else that lack of support has been throughout the organizations um, and continues to be. But appreciate you sharing that story with us. I mean, the other place where there's that lack of support is the social justice, the inclusion efforts. Um, again, I haven't been in Aspen a long time, but in talking to various people, it's not a place that people of color feel real comfortable at. That's, we tend to have people will come and then they're like, yeah, this isn't for me and they don't leave. We see the same thing with people with a strong social justice um, emphasis that are, yeah, we want to be here, but it's not really a place for me or there's not the support or there's not the infrastructure that makes me feel fully welcome here. Um, and that's been a big hole in ASP. And I know they keep trying to do different things. And I've been on, I can't even tell you how many years I've spent on what once upon a time was called the diversity committee. And in fact, when we, when, when Heather and I came back to the Indianapolis conference, who is that? I forget who the chair of the, of the diversity committee is. They're like, but if you're coming, then you need to be on this, on this committee. And they're like, if there's anything we would ever be involved in. So we got back on the committee. It lasted one year because I'm like, you're fighting the same things that I was fighting for 20 years ago. We have made no progress. There are more out people around ASP, absolutely. Um, but I don't see anything in the infrastructure that supports broad-based diversity. Is that something that contributed to starting the social justice and sport conference? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'd been talking about it for a while and I found, you know, eventually got talking to various people that had the same passions. Cause I would go to, I would go to um, NAS, the, the sports sociology group every, like every other year. And so I would talk to the other sports psychologists there and I'm like, we need to do something. And, um, and at some point I end up sitting down with, with, again, with Heather Barber and Diane Whaley and like, yeah, this, we, we need a place to go. I, I feel homeless. I mean, I literally, I felt like, you know, I did, I felt homeless once I stopped going to ASP. I don't have a home place. I'm not mainstream sports psych anymore. And that's what that organization is. And NASPA, I kind of came and went and I enjoyed when I was there, but most the content of the sessions wasn't my primary interest. And like, so there's all these people interested in various aspects of social justice and we're homeless. Like we go to the sports site social, and we joke with people. We are the sports psychologists there. <laughs> I mean, it's very clear. We are not sports sociologists. They embrace us. They're wonderful, but it's not our home. And so we're like, we need our own space. And when we created the, um, the first social justice yeah, and so social justice through sport and exercise psychology symposium. We decided not to create an organization because we didn't we didn't have the energy. But also it's like we just need a space. And if it builds over time and people want to take it to and do more, that's great. But for now, we need the social support. So we act we created it 
so that there is almost as much conversation time as presentation time. So every session, you know, none of this 12 minute talk with three minutes of questions. We would have a group of, you know, three people present for 15, 20 minutes each, and we would have a half an hour conversation for that session. We had lots of, we had sessions that the goal of the session was to create a group conversation on a topic. Um, and I kind of joke that it was half social support and half professional development because we needed that. We needed each other. And the people, I mean, it's like everyone that's gone, it's like, oh my God, these are my people. <laughs> it's like, and some are still heavily involved in ASP and are on committees and are trying to make change in ASP. And I fully support that. And some of us are like, yeah, we can't do ASP anymore. That's just not fitting our, our needs and our interests anymore. And this is where we're going to put our focus. Um, so yeah, absolutely. We're a splinter of people that don't feel that ASP values um, social justice. I keep thinking like someone who is so intimately involved with ASP for so long and they feel like you don't have a place there. How many people who come maybe for a year or two and also are left out without a place? I just, there's so many people that I feel like are, are not finding what they need from that organization. And hopefully they find that somewhere else, but some may float a little bit. And I know I've talked to mm -hmm. colleagues who feel like they don't have that home like they thought they might have for sure. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of sad. And again, that's, I'm convinced ASP is going to continue to be successful. There are a large group of people, particularly coming from the counseling world, they're going to do exactly, or that do exactly what ASP is focused on in, today. Um, but they're losing a lot of folks that have a broader view of what is sports psychology or what can we do with a sports psychology degree or within the field. Um, and the more narrow it is, the more they focus on elite sport, the more and more we reinforce, and I'm just going to throw it out, the more and more we reinforce hegemonic masculine norms of sport, which is not inviting for a lot of people. Um, and that, that, gets, that gets recreated in how the organization runs all the way through how we interact with athletes. And I don't think people like purposely like, oh, I'm going to be masculine or think about like I'm reinforcing it. But if we look at what are the values the values that I see in ASP today are all about helping elite athletes win. And uh, I have this really cool class that um, I take students to the Olympic Training Center and we spend a week out in Colorado Springs and talk to, gosh, tons of people that of the staff out there and get to um, tour about all the behind the scenes. It's really fun. And so you know, I've got all my sports psych students and we all learn, you know, you want to be task oriented and create a, you know, autonomy, supportive climate and all these things. And then you learn while you're there, it is, it is incredibly cutthroat for funding. So if you're a team and you're training at the Olympic training center and you go to worlds and you don't place top three, they kick you out, bring in the next team. Um, if you're an athlete and you're, you're not meddling at the high level again, at Worlds or the high-level championships, you don't have health insurance anymore. I mean, it is incredibly cutthroat that, and that's what I see as supporting. How do we help people make it up the ladder as opposed to let's, how do we help people be healthy in this process? And I say the same thing as sport medicine people. Their goal is to get you in the game. 
and my AT faculty would yell at me for saying this, but for some people at the elite level, the goal is to make you get through the game, not necessarily ensure that you're going to walk well 10 years from now. You know, and I see the same thing that we're, look at what's blowing up in, in sport, everything from the Russian skater to the NWSL to we're now hearing it in bobsledding. I mean, all these abusive coaching scenarios, we're, we're complicit in helping athletes get in, navigate a system that's incredibly unhealthy, mentally, emotionally, physically. And yet, I don't know, again, I haven't been at Aspen a long time, but I don't see a whole lot of people loudly saying this needs to like burn it down and start over. This is not a system we should be supporting in good faith. Ethically, we should not be, let me help you get to the NWSL. Ethically, we should be like, how do we get rid of those coaches? And to take it a step further, how do we include trans athletes? We should be the one saying inclusion is, is the better way to go, not supporting the system that sex tests runners, middle distance runners, um, and then tells them that you can't run in the women's events. But yet, as a field, it feels like our goal is to, I'm going to help you get to that elite level with not a critical thought on what that, what situation we're putting people into. And that's, to me, that's a big part of like, I, I can't live with that. Oh, you got me on a whole new soapbox. <laughs> no, it's important uh, no. things to think about, though. I mean, uh, these are the conversations that I think need to be happening, too. I'm, I'm glad you're bringing it up. I mean, I think it's something that we should all consider and think through of, like, what are our responsibilities and what are the roles in those organizations? I think that's a really important topic and something that probably isn't, I, I shouldn't even say probably, something that's not talked about enough. Okay, well, so if we switch gears here for a second, um, and then we'll get back into some of these conversations. We'd like to hear, we've heard so many great stories already, and this idea of going to the conference early and getting some writing done is such a great idea. And now I'm thinking the only way that this project is gonna get finished is if we do that, Eric. So maybe we think about that. Um, but if you could tell us a fun time from um, your uh, fun story from your time in the field, really anything goes, just a story that brings a smile to your face, um, just something that 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 you really love to share. Well, just briefly piggybacking off of that one, I have another story. <laughs> so I forget to eat. If I'm like on a roll and I'm writing, I'm like, I'm just like, let's cruise. I'm working. We are. <laughs> Poor Heather. It'd be like one o'clock. She's like, thick, thick. Can, can, can I go get a bag of chips? Like, oh, we stopped for lunch. <laughs> but we were amazingly productive when we would lock ourselves in a room for 12 hours. Um, oh, stories. Let's see. Um, I think it was 1994. We were at Lake Tahoe. Um, I definitely know that's where we were. I think that was the year. And that was the year that I actually had data from interviews with the lesbian athletes. It was analyzed and I was getting ready to like, okay, I have something to present. And I'm thinking, I need someone to work with me on this. I'm not sure if I'm brave enough to do this all by myself just yet. Cause at that point I was still an assistant professor and feeling like, hmm. So I call Robin Veely. <laughs> Like, Robin, want to join me? And the two of us will do this symposium and you can kind of lay the foundation and then I'll talk about the data. She's like, 
yeah, I think we should do this. Good, a good idea. So <laughs> we get to Lake Tahoe. I get laryngitis and Robin has a bad back and is gimping around. <laughs> so it's sort of like everything we know about stress and injury, stress and illness. <laughs> but this was in the day when they had sessions on Sunday mornings. So the conference would actually end at noon on Sunday. And usually they put Sunday morning, the sessions they figured nobody would want to go to. So Robin and I were Sunday morning and I, I had another, I was on a panel discussion earlier in the conference and I'm like, Diane, Gil, will you, will you come and talk for me? I'm just going to write out answers and you talk. And I'm like, I am not talking because I have to talk Sunday morning. <laughs> so sure enough, I'm, you know, sounding like a bullfrog. I managed <laughs> to get through my talk, but the two of us, it was funny, but it was one of the things that was really cool is like, so Sunday morning is usually when everyone's packing up and running to their plane. Um, but the Berkeley crowd at that time, Brenda Bredemeyer was still at Berkeley and oh my gosh, um, Gloria Solomon, Leslie Fisher, Don, 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 Don. Oh goodness. Oh, I'm in trouble for forgetting Don's last name. Um, there was a group of them that were all, you know, doing this feminist sports psych working with Brenda Bredemeyer. And I remember they all convinced Brenda, like, no, we're not leaving until after this presentation. So we actually had an audience. But yeah, I mean, the two of us gimping through the conference with like, are we going to be able to do this presentation? We finally get something on the program. Forget that it's Sunday morning. We just can't be there. But it all worked out. <laughs> oh, man. Robin's a good pinch hitter to bring in anytime. That's a good call. Then the another one, and I don't want to say this was a fun occasion, but I don't know if anyone else talked about it. In 1992, the conference got food poisoning. No, this is brand new information. 1992, we were in Colorado Springs. I was a second-year assistant professor, um, still staying with my grad school buddies. So I was staying in a room with Laura Finch and Liz Hart. And so we had the opening reception. There was, you know, food and drink, whatever. The next day, I think it was the next night, so 24 hours after the opening reception, people started getting sick. And, oh, my God, thankfully, I did not get sick, but, oh, my God, the two of them, they were tag teaming all night long back and forth <laughs> to the bathroom. Like, it's a good thing I'm healthy because there's not enough room for a third sick person in this room. <laughs> oh, so then you get down to the conference, and, I mean, you had to laugh at these things. So... The, the, the moderators would be going like, okay, we have three speakers. Now, so-and-so's feeling a little queasy. So if somebody like steps off the podium and runs, just get out of their way and let them go. <laughs> oh, no. And we literally would have people sometimes halfway through a session, through their presentation, run out the door. Sometimes they'd just make it through and they'd run out the door or they'd just sit there. So half the audience was like green staring, going, <laughs> we got to the final um banquet and it happened to be halloween so those left standing dressed up it was like a quarter of the conference went to the final banquet <laughs> oh my god so whatever it was they kind of tracked it back it was something during the open during the opening buffet oh banquet that yeah that was that was probably one of the most interesting conferences because i mean literally you saw someone moving fast people just got out of their way and let them run by oh. <laughs> yeah, that's the first for the food poisoning we get the Banff. we get a lot of stories from Banff um and the elk apparently oh, oh yeah yeah i had to sit and wait for elk to get i, I drove and i'm waiting to get my car and i'm just sitting there going 
there's an elk with a really big rack right there and watching all the female elk and like, I'm not moving. <laughs> the people the people that were waiting for me, it's like, the, you know, we're trying to get to our airplane. And I get down there like, why did it take you 45 minutes to get the car? I'm like, oh, there was a herd of elk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, elk. Oh, Vicki, I appreciate your perspective on this. And you've talked quite a bit about this already. So if there's things that you want to add, I encourage that. If you feel like you've touched on this, that's okay too. But um, in what ways do you feel like the field has evolved? And what are your thoughts, both good and bad, about that evolution? Yeah, I struggle with the term evolve because I think we've gone backwards. Hmm. We've gone from the beginnings of a broad base. We embrace a wide approach to sports psychology. We have youth sport through elite sport. We have exercise psych. We have social psych. We have researchers. We have clinical practitioners. We have performance enhancement people to a very, very narrow view of what counts as sports psych. Um, I don't know if either of you are privy to this. There's a email strand that's been going around over the last week or so about the um, ASP program directory. So people who are program directors, which I used to be, but I've handed that off to my colleague, but I'm still on the email list. Um, so I kind of follow the, the discussion. So, you know, you can write in the directory, you give the information about your program and you can say, you know, what experiences they can have. So people can look at this and figure out um, which program to go to. Great idea. It's been around for a lot of years. It just keeps getting bigger. It's a, it's a good, a really nice thing that ASK does for students. So the most recent iteration, I did not see the actual what we had to fill in, but I started seeing the emails that apparently there's a new process that you can go online and fill it in, but it's one of those things that you can't leave something blank and move forward and you can't go back without losing things. So it's become an onerous process and that's one thing that's fixable, but apparently everything is focused on um, do you offer the classes needed for CPMC? Do you, what kind of mentoring do you do? What kind of oppor internship opportunities? And it's all performance enhancement. And so several people from a variety of programs are going, well, what about the rest of us? It's like, I don't feel like I even fit in this directory anymore because we don't do performance enhancement along with getting licensure. We, you know, we, t we teach applied sports psych, but we also teach social psych and we're youth sport or we're this or we're that. Um, and so this whole conversation just reinforced that ASP is working with people who want to be certified only and that they're getting narrower and narrower towards. And now they're talking about this program accreditation, which again, not being in the loop on the information, but being at the Midwest sport and exercise psychology symposium, which was at Ball State, we had 40 faculty there this year, we keep growing. Um, and so um, they were talking about, they're now talking about accrediting programs, but all of the accreditation is based on, are you getting people to be certified? Um, not necessarily accrediting programs to do other things, which let's be honest, when students want to go into sports psych, 95% of them think they want to go on and be, you know, work with athletes. Want to, and a lot of them want to work with elite athletes. And then they start to learn about the field. Because as an undergrad, you get one, maybe two classes and go, this is really cool. I want to teach people these skills. And then you start to learn all the different things you can do. And, the, you know, whether it's research or whether it's, you know, doing other types of work with sports psych skills related to sports psychology. 
But the credential, you know, if you're going to be accredited to be performance enhancement and other programs that don't do that aren't going to be accredited, students are not going to apply to your program. And once they get there, they, they, they might have a great experience or they might realize like, oh, I, I don't really want to be certified, but I want to do this. But it's, it's, it's going to eventually hurt programs like mine that don't lead to certification at this point in time and lots of other programs um, because that narrow focus on do you offer what it takes to get certified is going to guide students in a very narrow direction. And students are not going to learn that there's other opportunities. I mean, think of something like, you know, Minnesota and work with Diane Weiss-Bjornstahl doing um, sports psych with athletic training. Oh, psych of injury. Well, that's really important. You don't need to be certified to do that. Um, but, you know, if my thought is the only thing I know about the field is I have to become certified and that program's not accredited, that might not be a place I look to go. So I think the field is becoming very myopic honestly. And I think, like I said, I think we, we've seen this little by little coming. Um, and look what's happened to the, I forget what it's called. Is it the charter, the um, main document that has like that, you know, it used to start out, we have three, three sections. Oh, we're just going to take exercise psych off. Well, we lost all the exercise psych people. And they're like, well, we don't need social psych in there either. So there went all the social psych people. Um, so they're, they're even just, and they say, oh, but we still do social psych and we still do exercise. I'm like, well, if your main documents don't name those things, no, nah, you've lost those people. They're, you're not supporting those, those areas. So I think the field has gotten very, very narrow in, or ASP has gotten very narrow. Um, NASPA does totally different things. NASPA is much broader in, in the content and how they approach. They're much more, um, focused on research, obviously. And that's always been their focus. Whereas ASP is has had the, the um, applied side covered. But, um, you know, ASP is a larger organization and they're kind of guiding certification and guiding the field in a very narrow focus. So I think it's, I think we've lost a lot of people that could bring some really cool social psych, social justice, exercise psych um, to the conference, to the table, to the forefront of our thoughts that, they they don't come to ASP anymore, and they're not coming back. Hmm. So for this next question, I'm going to shift it a little bit. So instead of asking where you think the field is going, because I think you've answered that really well for us, if you could, like, ideally think about, like, where do you think the field has the potential to go? all things and moving in a, what we would consider like a positive direction. Where do you, what do you think that potential really could be? I, I'm pretty cynical on that front. Um, I have a hard time looking at the current leadership, seeing them do anything but continued on this narrow path. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of people looking for new homes. Um, and social justice group, we're small. You know, we maybe get 100 people. So we're not, we're not the answer. I mean, we're, we're great for the small group, but there's still lots of others that are feeling left out. But I think people are finding different groups. I mean, my exercise-focused people all have found other groups. I mean, I remember as far back as when um, Larry Brawley stopped coming to the conference, which was before I was president. And I remember talking to him and saying, what, what would it take to bring you back? And he's like, 
yeah, y'all don't do exercise anymore. I've gotten involved with another group and I found a home there. So, I mean, I think we're seeing that. And I think, I think we're seeing people going to other places. There's a lot more options, you know? So if you're interested in body image, there's organizations just on the body. Um, whereas we used to have that kind of as part of social psych. So I think, yeah, I'm, I'm not real optimistic that, um, we're going to see changes. And I think sport has changed, you know, sport has become so much more narrowly focused. You know, we have young, you know, little peewees that are being treated like, you know, mini professional athletes and, you know, spending thousands of dollars to put your eight-year-old on a travel team. It's insane. So, I mean, I see sport as a whole becoming more, more and more elitist. And I think sport psych is like, we can help them. And there's a market for that. And that's not where my interest is. And I think you're, there will continue to be people that want to do that. And I think we're seeing more and more opportunities. We're seeing more and more schools hiring. Um, I'm a little dismayed that we are only hiring mental health people because I don't know, my training tells me that if I can teach people stress management skills and teach them mindfulness and teach them to use imagery in productive ways and teach them to either have positive thoughts or be mindful in their thought processes. I'm not going to say we're going to cure depression, but I think we can help them from getting burned out, which leads to depression. I think there are a lot of things that the performance enhancement people, the educationally trained sports psychologists can offer that the people that have gotten to the NCA, the NCA is never going to hire us again. And I know they're not the ones hiring, but they're setting the tone and the schools are following that every, I have not seen a job um, announcement that doesn't want someone who's going to be licensed. So it's extremely hard for people trained like, I mean, I, I consider myself a dinosaur. People aren't going to be trained like me anymore. And that's too bad because they need us. They just don't realize. Um, and it used to be that we talked a lot about like having a team approach. It's great to have a clinical person and an educational person because yeah, we got it all covered, you know, and now we're, you know, COVID has just blasted the need for mental health for so many reasons, exacerbated the one, we talk about it more and two, it's harder right now for a lot of people. Um, yeah, we used to have athletes go for four years. I've got athletes going into their sixth year, you know, and they don't get a break. So talk about burnout and all the mental health issues that go along with that. So yes, yeah, so I just see us between the way sport is going and the way in order to accommodate the current set of athletes under the current system. Yeah. The where ASP is going seems to, they're going to have a market. They're going to always have a market. They're going to thrive. I think personally, I don't think it's a healthy direction for, for the little people, for the athletes, for the people that have the least power in this. They're the ones that are going to have the hardest, um, the hardest tasks. But um, yeah, I just see us going in that direction. I mean, the only way to do something completely different is to create a whole separate organization. I don't know um, what you would even do. I don't know if you'd get the social psych people back. I mean, we'd, we, we desperately need a place to put all those social psych people and all the researchers because that included the, the social justice folk. Most of us are social psych trained that go, you know, into sports psych looking at that. Um, and I think we've lost the, the exercise people for the most part. 
to him because they have other organizations to go to. So yeah, I don't have I don't have a lot of optimism on that front. I appreciate that, and your experiences thus far would certainly support the lack of optimism. I would say. So given all of the amazing mentors that you had throughout your career, this is typically one of my favorite questions, especially being surrounded by so many amazing mentors of my own. Um, so what advice do you have for students and new professionals entering into the field now? And I find myself in this interesting position of mentoring students into a field I kind of disagree with. <laughs> Um, I think the training that I'm telling them to get is not the training I would want them to have. But I tell them right off the bat, look at the job market. Most of the jobs out there right now, they want you to be certified, which interestingly means only one sports like grad class. Um, you need to do what it takes to get certified. You need to do what it takes to become licensed, typically through counseling. And you need a PhD. Well, that's one, two, three degrees, basically. Um, that's a lot of schooling. And I have, so I have students that are like, well, I don't want a PhD. I'm like, look at the job market. If you don't want a PhD, then we're going to have to figure out what else are you going to do with this degree. So I think trying to be, get informed, do your homework, look at what you want to do, look at what the requirements are to do that, and try to find a path to get you there. Um, one of the things, one of the kind of my go-to advice when I work with students that are like, well, I don't know if I want to do that or this is take the path that gives you the most options. So um, I'll bring students in, for example, and they're like, well, I don't know if I want to get certified, but I think I do. I'm like, well, then you need to go, you know, good idea to get the counseling degree, which with my program, you can do our master's in kinesiology and a master's of counseling at the same time. Um, I said, but Start the Kines program, since that's where you know you want to be. Take a few counseling classes. If you like them, you can keep going. If you don't, you've got a couple of electives that tell you, well, now I need to look at different options. So try to find what's the path that's going to keep my options open. I mean, at some point, you're going to have to jump into, like, yes, I'm applying for a doc program. But as at the early stages, take your time to kind of do your homework. Find out what are the options, what is it that I really want to do, um, the other thing that I find really difficult is my students are like, well, I want to do an internship. Well, you can't sit in on individual sessions. We all know that. That's difficult. Um, right now with, you know, so many people trying to get certified, those in the few internships that are out there are highly competitive. So as a, you know, first year master's student with no applied experience, you're not going to get those internships. So I don't even know how to give them that beginning experience. Um, so trying to come up and figure out being creative, how do we get you the experiences you need? They're going to help you move along, along the pathway. Um, I always go back to what's your passion, you know, and I, I work with students that I, I, I'm actually in a pretty amazing position to work with a wide range of students. So I work with students in our kinesiology program. Some want to go on, get certified in sports site. I work with students in American culture studies who are doing cultural studies of sport um, and trying to figure out like, what do I do with a degree in cultural studies of sport? Well, with a PhD, you can work in, in um, sports, you know, teaching sports sociology, which is where a number of my students have gone to in, in that direction. But what about a master's degree in cultural studies of sport? Now, what do I do? And so 
I'm working with a student right now trying to figure out like what what are the options? Where are your interests? And things like working for Athlete Ally. Um, and there's a number of organizations like that. So there's trying to figure out like, do your homework, what's out there? What's even possible? And yes, you need someone like me to say, there's this group called Athlete Ally, um, if they haven't run into it. Um, but trying to, you know, figure out what's out there. Um, pick your mentors. You know, so people get caught up in like, oh, this school, you know, Stanford, I'm going to go there for sports psych. And it's like, what are you interested in? <laughs> Who's there that does what you're interested in? Um, you know, think about, I mean, most of the places I've gone to school and a lot of our, lot of our best, particularly master's programs, I mean, who thinks of Miami of Ohio as like, yeah, that's the best place in the whole country to go to. But no, it's one of the best master's programs in the country to go to. So yes, you want to go there. Um, so thinking about who, who is it that does what you think you want to do and talk to those people. I always encourage students to send an email. You know, if you're interested in a program, make up a question. You might even know the answer to it, but send an email saying, I'm interested in your program. Can I do this? start a conversation with someone. And we're much better once we talk to people because, um, you know, you can look at an application and then you go, oh, I've, I've met this person or now we've had a Zoom conversation and they may or may not actually apply to the program, but you get a feel for what are my options better. So kind of put yourself out there as much as possible to, to learn as much as you can. Vicki, thinking big picture, what do you hope your impact on the field will be? <laughs> oh, what do I hope? Um, I'd like to think I've made it a little bit better. I, yeah, I, I have this difficult history. I mean, there was a time where I thought, yeah, I was doing all the right things to help the field move forward. And then that all fell apart. And then it's like, well... I hope I've had an impact, a positive impact on the people I've touched to provide them the opportunity to know that they can be themselves. And one of the things, I, I was invited to do the, the NASPA senior lecture and kind of did that look back on my career. And uh, one of the things I realized, and I think Heather Barber and I realized this later into our careers, we didn't set out to do this. You know, we set out with our research agenda and we wanted to get these topics into the literature, onto conference programs. But in the process, we became role models for being out queer sports psychology people. And I'd like to think just my visibility made it a little bit easier for somebody else. Yeah. That's all I hope. That's great. Yeah, incredible. Really, uh, probably something that we can't measure, but the the ripple effect of that, I imagine it's just, it's huge. So. When I think back to where you talked earlier about how you had that conversation and it was such an intimate conversation way back when, and now to have someone who would identify in a similar situation say, I see people in the field like me seems like a huge, huge accomplishment. And, and I will say, I mean, there are times where I will get emails that eventually sometimes turn into Zoom conversations with people. I had a conversation with someone before the last ASP, and I forgot where it was, it was in Texas. Um, young person identified as trans is like, I don't know if I can go. I don't know if I feel safe there. And there's no one to talk to. And I don't know how they found their way to me. And I'm like, I'm glad you could talk to me. 
And we, we talked for a while about, you know, what are the options, you know, and as a student, you feel like you have to go to these things, you know, to have someone say, you know what, if you don't feel safe, don't go, but let's talk the pros and cons and weigh out, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but let's lay out what best case, worst case scenario all the way around. What can you live with? You know, so I think I've had enough people reach out to me in ways like that, that I'm glad that I am visible. And I know I'm not the only one doing this by, you know, I'm sure there are others that get these kinds of questions as well, but um, I'm just happy that they find somebody to reach out to. Definitely. Yeah. Is there anything that we haven't asked you about or anything else that you'd like to share about any of the things that we've talked about so far, or maybe something that we haven't talked about? Hmm. The one thing I haven't talked about, and I don't know if you want to go there or not, and I'm fine one way or the other, um, just being that out person at ASP in the early days, and it was, it was such a different world. What was that experience like, yeah. Vicki? Yeah, if you're willing to talk about it, we would love to hear about it. It was just a different world. I mean, when... When I was in grad school at my master's program, I essentially got outed and we were, we must've had like 30 grad assistants. And we had one of those giant rooms with like a 15 desks and everyone shared a desk. And so we all hung out together and like 15 to 20 of us would go out every weekend together. So we were a close group and my second beginning of my second year, I got outed and boom, they just stopped talking to me. I mean, that was the atmosphere back then. Um, and that was in the late eighties. Um, by the time I got to my PhD program, um, I moved to town with my partner at the time and we just kind of were, you know, no major, like here I am, but it was just, we just were, and there were more openly gay people in our, in our, at least to each other, um, not necessarily professionally, but amongst each other. Um, so it kind of wasn't an issue as much. Um, but professionally there was that cloud over just women's sport, women's physical education that couldn't help but to seep into sports psychology. Like, oh, when I start, and this is just going to sound funny, and I hope all these pictures have like been burned. But I mean, for presentations, I would wear heels and a skirt and a jacket suit. It's like, this is what you do. You, you have to be respectable, professional, and this is how you are supposed to look. Oh, God, thank goodness that's gone by the wayside. Um, not that you're not professional looking, but it wasn't quite so um, centered on you have to look very feminine to it in order to be considered an acceptable professional in our field. Um, so in the early days, I mean, professionally, like wandering around the conference, talking to people, perfectly fine. When it came time for socializing, there were a whole lot of people that did not want to be seen anywhere near anything social with the people with myself and the few people I was hanging out with, and. Over time, over the years, I mean, gay, straight, whatever, there were people that avoided us. And then little by little, just we were all, we were professional friends. And then it's like everyone just started hanging out together. Nobody really cared. So it was kind of fun to, to see that trajectory. But, but the early years where I, I can remember being at a board meeting, I think I was secretary treasurer, so mid-90s, and someone made a a joke about something dikey. I don't even remember, but the punchline was something dikey. And I just was like, did I hear that right? Is that really what I heard? You know, in the moment you're kind of like, and then the conversation continues. You're like, hmm. Then I'm like, oh, why didn't I say anything? So it turned out we were walking to a meal and I ended up next to that person and just said, you know, 
I just want to sell you. I'm not really comfortable with those kinds of jokes. I am one of those dykes and I just appreciate not hearing. That person turned into like one of my biggest supporters, you know, to, but, but it was like, that's just, people would just say things and do things without thinking. So the field, it was kind of cool to see over time, just more and more acceptance. And the acceptance was much more on a personal level. And I've written about the lack of institutional support. Um, but, um, but yeah, just being, it would, it was interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, there were so many people that were just like, yeah, just kind of keep it quiet. Um, and like I said, some of it was just being concerned that I would never get promoted. I would never get tenure, those kinds of things. But, um, but yeah, it was a really different world. And, you know, it's like telling when people ask about my sport background, it's like pre title nine. I mean, not only were people sexist, but they're just, you know, it was just a very, very different world. So trying to understand that at the beginning of my career, there was nothing that said it was safe to be openly gay within academia as a whole, but also within sports psychology. I mean, and the same thing was happening on my campus. It was the same, um, we'd have a, a gay get together and it was literally like, you know, hush, hush, don't tell anyone. We'd meet at some, uh, out, you know, far away place that no one would ever see us. And people were like, yeah, if my chair saw me, I'd get fired or I wouldn't get tenure. So, I mean, it was just a really different world. So, I mean, in that sense, it is nice to see that so many more and not just younger people, but because of my students, that's who I, I have a tendency to hear from them, um, can be themselves. So it is kind of nice to see the, the, the trajectory over time. Hmm. Yeah. So I, it's so disappointing. And I think in some ways, those things are like hard to like imagine in a good way. But then also, as we said earlier, there's so many things that still haven't changed. And it's like, in 2023, the same conversations that you were having in 1980s, we're still having today. And it's just, sometimes it just feels really like disheartening. And so your comment of like, burn it all down and start over sometimes sounds really good. Um, but yeah, we appreciate you sharing that with us. And and again, I just can't imagine like how many lives both like covertly and then maybe subtly have been impacted by by you being mm -hmm. the ball. So it's really great. And I mean, and I wasn't the only one that was open or visible, but um there were certainly people before me. I mean, I wasn't the first by any means. Um there were people before me, but it was um much quieter. Mm -hmm. And they they tended not to get the respect they should have had for the, the type of scholarship they were doing. Um, so there was kind of like that, you know, the, the warning, like you could end up over there. Um, so I think that's what people were worried about. You know, the, the people around close to me that were like, yeah, be careful. Hmm. Vicki, I just want to say thank you again. Um, being in the Midwest for so long, I've seen you from afar and we had some passing conversations, but yes. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. I, I, I love that you're, you're pushing us a little bit to think more. And I think that should be what we should be doing. And I just really appreciate your transparency and your openness through everything. So um, from myself and the team, I just want to say thank you for your time and your, your perspective on it. Well, thanks for your interest. One of the things, and I just remembered this, one of the things that we were going to do with that website that never quite got finished, we had a space where we were going to do videos of all the, like the, of the presidents. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you for doing this. No, ASP needs this. I mean, I think this history, um, 
you know, I've talked to a couple of people. They're like, oh, I'm trying, you know, I need to gather my facts to like go get, I got to remember back then. And, <laughs> you know, and, um, so I think, I think you're getting, hopefully getting people giving you all sides of what was going on. And, and I, I mean, I know that you talk talked to the people that were presidents on either side of me, you're going to get a very different story, mm-hmm. but um, that's just the nature of these things. Absolutely. Yeah. For sure. Well, well, thanks for the opportunity to unload and share. <laughs> yeah, the pleasure is all ours. Really uh, appreciate it. And I think just acknowledging that um, the volunteer aspect, you certainly didn't have to do this. So the fact that you did, we're very grateful that, that you were willing to sit down with us today. So uh, we've asked, Dr. Vicki Crane has answered, and uh, we'll see you all next time.